Hello and welcome. It's throwback attack time once again, and this time we have a very special guest. We're going to head back to 90s CITV and a long-running comedy featuring an American boy and his alien chum. To cast your mind back to CITV in the 90s, one of the most popular shows at the time was the sci-fi comedy Mike and Angelo, all about a young boy called Mike whose best friend was Angelo, a crazy, juggling, ceiling-walking humanoid alien who crash-landed in Mike's home after escaping his home planet, which was self-destructing, in his spaceship which could morph into a wardrobe. It ran for an amazing 12 series on CITV, and today I'm chatting with none other than Angelo himself. It's Tim Whitnell. Hello. Hello, Jack. Gosh, what a succinct and beautifully put introduction. Thank you. Thank you very I'm much. I'm thinking, he's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly I've what got... the show was about. It was crazy. Yes, I've, I've got a feeling I might be wrong about all this. And if, if I promise you I'm not drunk, but I think it's, it still holds the record for the longest running children's drama on CITV. I think uh, it's second only to the Sooty show in terms of longevity, but... When I first got involved, I know that I inherited the role from Tyler Butterworth. The um, producer actually said to me, oh, you might get a year out of this. And suddenly an entire decade passed. <laughs> I started the series with hair and ended very much without it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, gosh, that's amazing. Thank you. It's put it into focus for me. That's great. No problem. We'll talk more about it in just a little bit. But what I want to start off with is um, a bit about yourself, your background and how you got into acting. Yeah. Well, I was very lucky. I, I really won my first ever acting job. I'd always wanted to perform and I was a bit of a rascally mimic. I used to do impressions of the teachers at school and various members of my family. And I sort of ended up doing doing my family all felt rather academic and ended up in very sensible jobs. But I wanted to run away and join the circus. So I was very young when I started working. But what actually happened was that... Um, I'd been a member of the local drama club, after school drama works and workshops and all that sort of stuff. And in the summer of 1977, my hero, Elvis, died, which is, <laughs> it's a bit of a non-secretor, but there we go. Um, he passed away and, and within a few weeks of his death, my mum actually heard uh, the director and the producer, Jack Good, being interviewed on Radio 4. And he was looking for uh, the third the, the 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 third Elvis to play Elvis Presley in his musical in the West End in London. So he'd already signed two others and was looking for someone to play the young Presley. So, yep, I came to London. I auditioned in the rain in my school blazer with my little school guitar, and I got the job on the spot. And it was one of the few jobs I ever got on the spot, I have to say. I thought it always worked like that. <laughs> I was wrong. Um, but after you know, a few more auditions, I actually ended up getting the role. And, and so I was very lucky. I, I, I sort of won, won a job very much like you would do now through a TV talent show like Britain's Got Talent, for example, or something like that. Um, and uh, ended up sort of then having to learn the business after a fairly auspicious start. Uh, the show did really well. It won several awards and it sort of was a catapult really into into what I wanted to do. So... I'd had a career in music theatre and I did a lot of various roles in, in TV dramas and things like that. So it was pretty much a question of learning how to how the business works and how to perform and how to conduct a professional sort of career. And that's really what I was doing up to the point when I got cast in Michelangelo. So big start, good start. And then I slowly went back and learned how to do it properly and <laughs> behave myself. <laughs> so that's how I ended up playing, you know, auditioning for Mike and Angelo. Good stuff. I mean, I've seen some videos online of yourself, and this probably relates to the Elvis musical. I've seen yeah. some videos of yourself online performing covers of 50s and 60s songs on various TV yeah. shows. What what was all that's that about? Right. Well, from from the Elvis musical, I, I got... There was a kind of real culture in retro shows. So you had big hits with things like Grease, the movie Grease, I ended up in the stage show of that. Um, I, I, I did quite a few sort of, uh, why am I calling them sort of? They were um, homages to sort of, I guess they're called jukebox musicals. I did shows like Yakety Yak, Only in America. So I had a sort of reputation for 
performing that music. It's music that I loved, and it was music that I felt comfortable performing. And uh, I really, I guess I had a penchant for it. So those clips that are on the YouTube that friends mercilessly dig up and send to me, because I really love seeing images of myself at 17. <laughs> Not. Um, <laughs> with hair by Buick, as they used to say. Uh, they came to shows like they did a, a TV show called Oh Boy from ATV in Birmingham. Um, so they're clips from shows that I did that were sort of spin-offs from musical theatre work that I was doing. And I was very lucky I got to perform with some of the best uh, producers, composers, musicians, stars. But I think, as I said earlier, I was still very much learning. I was still only 17, 18 years old by then. So I was very much learning how it works and, and how you get work and what you do with your day. And not many people taught you that. You sort of had to learn it by your nose, really, and, and by your wits. So, yeah, those, those clips come from that period, really, of, of doing, doing shows like Paul Daniels' Blackpool Bonanza. And, yeah, it was sort of last days of variety, really, that I in which I started my illustrious and dubious career. So that's my background, really. Musical theatre, selfish, you know, unapologetically. I'm very unapologetically, I'm very proud of it. And it seems like another life ago because it was such a long time ago, but also it's very different from what I do now. So, But I'm very grateful for it. So, yeah, I was looking at some clips last night and I have to say you do a very good rendition of Dream Lover. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, that's a lovely song. Bobby Darren, what a It is a great tune. I do like some of those songs, actually. It is, it is yeah. good, good music, good music. And um, so, yeah, the main reason we're here to talk is about Mike and Angelo. And you took over the role of Angelo from Tyler Butterworth, who did it for the first two series. That's right. I did, and, yeah. And uh, like you say, you played it for 10 years. So how did the role come about? Um, did you audition for it? And how did the audition go, kind of thing? Yes, I did audition for it. And... It's a very memorable audition because um, I'd been doing a show in Liverpool at the um, Playhouse Theatre and I'd met a friend of mine back in London uh, just for a walk and a cup of tea and we were, he was telling me about his friends and um, this friend was an actor and his friend was a writer and his friend had just been commissioned by Thames Television to write episodes of this new show that he'd come up with and it was Michelangelo and it was... Brilliant. I was thinking, oh, great. I'd always wanted to write. So I was very congratulatory and I was very proud for him and everything else. And uh, that was Grant Cathro, who co-devised the show with Lee Pressman. And then I sort of parked that for, you know, it didn't go in one ear and out the other, but it was just a friend telling me about a friend. So it was on my radar. So <laughs> a couple of years later, when it actually the part came up for recasting, I knew about the show because... Cal McChrystal, his name was, had told me about Grant and Lee's baby and how they'd developed it and got it commissioned as a series. So it was something that I, I'd known about. So oh, I was very interested and an agent called me up and said, look, would you be interested in it? And I think what really drew me to it was the fact that it was a part that really required you to use all the ammo in your arsenal, that it required you to to develop your comic timing I was able to use all my musical skills in it. I couldn't juggle beforehand, but boy, did I learn to juggle. And so did Michael Benz. The two of us just became obsessed with it. So all that stuff that the, the role required. And we also knew that you'd be working with fantastic guest artists every week. So it was just something that I, I didn't think in a million years I'd get. Um, I went along for the audition and I say I remember it because although it was such a long time ago, I do remember going to the old Thames TV studios in the Euston Road and auditioning for it. I had to prepare it and learn a few scenes and do a bit of sleight of hand stuff and basically look at, you know, dance around a bit. Um, but the fire alarm went off <laughs> in the oh, of, right in the middle of my uh, audition. So we were all absolutely consigned to the pavement outside in the busy road, Euston Road area. Um, and I do remember the producer saying to me, that was a great audition. And I'm thinking, I only got halfway through it. So when they called me back, I was so relieved. And um, it was lovely because he actually said, look, we thought, you know, we, we kind of knew we'd like you to do it. So they then gave me a second audition, which was on the Rainbow set. You oh, remember Rainbow Jack? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I, I was so impressed with that, actually having to 
do, you know, sell my wares on the rainbow set as part of the audition. But um, yes, it was a really memorable audition. And then I thought, it's funny, a lot of actors say this. I thought, oh, I didn't do as well as I could have done. I didn't feel it went that brilliantly. And then I got a call about a week later saying that they'd like me to do it. So, yeah, it was a really happy time. And I went in and the first episode I had to do the famous Doctor Who morphing from the previous Angelo into the present Angelo. And then I stayed there for 10 years. So it was great. I actually did get to work with Tyler for one episode. So, um, yeah, I'm really pleased I did that. It was never mentioned, actually, why they changed Angelo's, apart from, like you say, yeah. the morphing. But there was there was never an explanation why um, Tyler decided to stop. But there we go. Yes, I know. Well, I guess people move on and they, mm. they get used to parts and things. I've had to do it when other things have come up and other work has come up. Um, but, yeah, I was really, I was very surprised that I got the part. Um <laughs> And I think I really had to grow into it as well. I think at first I felt that it was uh, it was something you really had to throw yourself at. And I was sort of, I'd come from, from roles in straight theatre, musical theatre, straight TV. Um, I'd never really done comedy work before. And that, I think I also really loved that about the show, that it was, for all intents and purposes, it looked like a live sitcom, even though we had to shoot it because it had so many technical aspects to it, whether it was the special effects or the makeup uh, it looked and was was presented very much as a, as a straight half hour sitcom um but yeah it was it was a real learning curve and one i'm really proud of good stuff good stuff and yeah like you say it was uh it, it was like a sitcom and there was a lot of technical aspects which we'll go on to in mm. a moment um but one thing i want to know is when you were playing angelo um because mm. it, it was quite a wacky role a lot of energy physical comedy did you draw yeah. upon any of your own comedy influences did you have any that you used i absolutely did that, that is a brilliant question uh but it, it was about i guess it was about three or four years before i i started the show uh, i was very lucky to have seen robin williams working in a club in west Hampstead in london and a friend of mine had, was a compare on the show and he called me i was just going to bed and he'd said, get down here now. You will not regret it. And I think Robin came on stage at midnight. I remember that, actually. Uh, it was it was phenomenal because you could see that thing of total investment, total throwing yourself at something and having the belief in it that some of it was just so out there and some of it worked, some of it didn't work. Some of it was pure gold. I remember that. Um, and I watched performers like Michael J. Fox doing the same thing in in his work where he was totally invested in it and and you could see that immersion and that commitment to it paying you back so yes it was that i was a big fan of python so i guess you know it was the first time stay with this jack it was probably the first time i'd ever done drag work and i loved it <laughs> <laughs> yes it was brilliant to be able to send pictures home to my mum in outfits far more glamorous than hers i think i played scarlet o'hara in one episode um, so it was a real sea change from going from these sort of cool, rather, um, I suppose you'd call them worthier parts into that thing where you had to really say, right, I'm going to park everything at, at you know, the, the front desk of the studio and go for it. And I'm, I, I, that was new to me, really. That was a, that's a great question, because I really did think of, of, of comic influences when I was doing it. And I hoped I, I sort of w was able to use that to... Yeah, to to the to the benefit of the show really because it was so well crafted, it was really well written, really well shot. It stretched all your abilities. It was a learning curve working with actors like Ron Moody and James Ellis and some fantastic performers like Christopher Biggins, Brian Murphy, who had come to the first read through off the book. They'd learned every word of it, and it was just amazing watching that. And also, you know, it was popular. I knew there was an audience for it, and. It was an audience of between four and five million every week, which seems incredible now when you're looking at shows that are considered successful on one, two million viewers. Mm -hmm. And that is that is something that I've that I will never ever not be grateful for. That is a privilege to to have been through that part. And it also belongs to I think an honesty and an innocence that children responded to. So if I didn't really throw myself at it, I'd have let everyone down. Um, and I, yeah, it was at first I found that quite tricky when I said it was a part that I had to grow into. Uh, I think that's one aspect of it. And that question really opens it up for me that that it was 
you know, looking at other comics work and looking at co comic actors work in particular, something that I, I drew on a, a great deal. Yeah, um, I have always liked physical comedy myself and yeah. some of the people you mentioned, like P Python, I like watching Python, Norman Wisdom, oh, people yeah. like that. And, oh, and um, yeah. Angelo, in a way, reminds me of, and I know there's an episode where he pretends to be this particular actor, reminds me of Jim Carrey a lot. Oh, that's so funny, yeah, because that... <laughs> But again, his career was was in the you know very it was very much of the early days of someone like that's career. But again, I was I remember going to see The Mask and thinking that's it, you know that's that's what I want to try and do with it. And even though it's a you know on a far less commercial scale and a and a smaller scale project, because sometimes you'd be asked to do something, and you and you would literally say to the mirror, I've never done that. So it wasn't a comfort zone at all. I, you know, some of the impressions I did, <laughs> I look back at them now, and some of them I think, that's, a, that's actually quite good. Uh, but others I look at and I think, oh, gosh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, and it's the same with the frocks and the costumes. I think, I don't even remember wearing that. <laughs> so you had, to throw, you had to throw all your kind of inhibitions out the window with it. And again, I think that's good for an actor. I, I really do. Definitely. Kind of reminds me of a way like um, the Bugs Bunny cartoons, how he'd suddenly have all these costumes and he'd drag up and people would not notice that there's a rabbit under there, you know, just be full. <laughs> oh, there's yeah. all these uh, people who turn up out of nowhere, all all at the same, but just in a dress that people fall for oh, in the gosh. show. Well, Mel Blanc's Humphrey Bogart impression was a lot better than mine, but <laughs> no, I loved doing that. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it did look like a blast to do and it was great to watch. Yeah, it was a blast to do. It was... <laughs> And it was also, I think, a time when I'd not done rep theatre, but it was almost like that, that for 10, 12 weeks of the year, you would learn the first step, spend four days honing it, polishing it. Literally, you'd run it in live action. So when you did your producer's run just before you went to the studio, you did run it in sequence and you did run it in time. I know I said it was disjointed when you shot it because it had to be by virtue of its technical aspect. But when you did it as a run, it was a, it was such an exciting thing, and then you'd park it, go to bed, think I'm shooting this tomorrow. But then, of course, come the next night, and you'd been in the studio from five in the morning, and you'd have to forget that one, wipe the hard disk, and then it was on to the next one. And I, I, I thought that was such a brilliant way of working, and it, that is something that I really I'm so glad I went through that because I'm not so sure that really exists anymore. It certainly doesn't within children's uh, children's television or children's drama, certainly. Um, and and there were many many great shows that did that as well that came before it and after it. Definitely, and and going on to the um, technical aspects, there's there's one in particular which was a mainstay of the show from pretty much day one. Um, was the walking on the ceiling that Angela used to do, and oh, yeah. uh, I remember being in awe of that as a child. And I said this to you <laughs> off. <laughs> You're laughing. I'm in awe of it too because I remember. <laughs> Wow! Yeah, I, I I said this to you just before we recorded this. That as a young child, I was so in awe of it that I tried to replicate it by attaching sellotape to my shoes. Funnily enough, it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now issuing a public disclaimer, Jack. I, I'm not responsible. I have. You can't come after me now, please, please. No, but seriously, uh, it was difficult to do it. And I'll give a. I know it's not a trade secret because it appeared in TV Times at the mm. time, but it was amazing. I think. Um, we had an incredible designer on it called Alex Clark, and he uh, he came up with this device. I think someone told me it was used in a Fred Astaire. It was, yeah, Fred Astaire. Oh, go on. And uh, I have seen the clip. It's a film. I've not seen the film, but I've seen the clip. Um, I think it's called Royal Wedding, and it was in Royal the 50s. Royal Wedding, that's right, yeah. And, of yeah. course, Lionel Richie used it as well in the Dancing on the Ceiling music video as well. Yeah. He did. Mm -hmm. So it's an enormous, great steel drum, and in that you build... Four, well, the, the wall, the ceiling, two walls, the ceiling and the floor of a room. Uh, you stand in that and the drum rotates around you while the camera locks off on you. So the room comes to your feet rather than you walking around it. So when it's kind of when it's shown back, then you just see the uh, camera's eye view. But it took a bit of get, getting used to. So, uh, yes. And then, of course, oh, by the way, while you're up there, juggle a few balls for us, will you? <laughs> oh, there you go. That's what I mean about stretching you. So, uh, yeah, I was, I loved it. That was brilliant. It did look good. And it was funny, really, because they used the same clip for the whole run of the show from the from, <laughs> from when you started up until when it I finished. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I could only do it once, I think. But it's not that easy to do. I have to, it, mm. I'm going back, gosh, 
years and years. But it was, I do remember lurching and thinking, no, come on, you've got to look smooth. Fred Astaire would have looked smooth. So <laughs> He had to yeah. tap dance while doing it, so, you know. <laughs> oh, he was, oh, okay, yeah, all right, all right. Come on, I juggled. <laughs> you juggled, and uh, he did look cool, actually. Yeah. And um, somebody actually uploaded to YouTube a, a documentary to, to a while back, and it was like the behind-the-scenes of Mike and Angelo, and they actually <laughs> show the clip of you doing the ceiling walk as they turn the giant uh, set around. It's almost like a big hamster wheel Good kind of thing. Grief. I've never seen that. Yes, I do remember there was a... Again, we're going back to an era where there was schools TV. That was what um, it was, yes. I do remember yeah. coming in and shooting something. So it may, may well have had Jack, I'm not really sure. Um, but I've never seen it. I'd love to see it. But they did come in and shoot the hamster wheel. Yeah, that's right, they did. Those <laughs> things go back to... Um, Another time when, uh, funny enough, I was down there this morning. I live very near where the old Thames TV studios mm -hmm. used to be at Teddington Lock. Uh, it was just so productive down there. It was probably the nearest thing that ITV had to, to the BBC TV centre because they had buildings, as I've said, in the, in the West End. They had buildings all over London, but they had this beautiful studio right on the lock at Teddington. And I had worked there. Gosh, I'd worked there. I'd been a guest on Magpie and... I'd even worked as, as an illustrator on a show called We'll Tell You a Sto Story. I did a musical drama there called The All-Electric Amusement Arcade as an actor. So I had a real passion for and a love for and an affinity with Thames TV, and I still do. Uh, unfortunately, it's knocked down. They've built this huge complex of Thames-side living luxury flats. But I do remember that, that time of working there as being magical, and I would go down to the canteen and there'd be Morecambe and Wise having their lunch and Kenny Everett and uh, it was just a wonderful creative time so Mike and Angelo for the first I think it was the first two series I did, it may have been more was actually shot at the Thames TV studios so I could cycle to work like a lucky boy very lucky but, but I do have cherished very fond memories of it and actually I was working at Thames when the company lost their franchise as part of, as part of the um, broadcast shakeup, so it was a very sad day. So I was I was very happy to work there, and Mike and Angelo is very much part of that period and that that work that um, you know that body of work for me. Certainly part of the history, and like you say, a, a golden age. And most of the TV yeah. studios have now gone, like Thames has, BBC Television Centre's now a, a block of flats. Um, it's unbelievable, isn't it? And I stuff know. like that. Uh, I mean, even up here where I am, you know, ATV Central's long gone, and yeah, you know, it's all. Oh, I had fantastic there. times at ATV and at Central, and both both in Birmingham and at Lenton Lane in Nottingham, and uh, did some really great shows there. And yeah, I had a very happy working relationship with ATV. And you can't, I don't know, I don't know if it's, it's sad to look back sometimes because, again, uh, the Thames TV thing, it's, it was just a beautiful building as well and the club was right on the river. I remember sitting with Mike Benz one night having a drink and looking down and just thinking, God, life doesn't get much better than this. It's great. You know, and it's my job. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway. And uh, one of the things you mentioned a little earlier on, and I was surprised actually, is that you said that you had to learn juggling for the show. You couldn't juggle before. I, did. I wouldn't have guessed because you, you did it so well. Oh, thank you. Because actually, it was something I, that I really wanted to get right. And it's funny because when Mike Benz joined the show, he played Mike Mason in in the sort of middle section of the show, and such such a lovely young guy, and and has had a great career since Mike and Angelo. Um, but he, he was like a sponge, whether it was learning a scene. I was just, uh, I was mesmerized by his talent at, at sight reading, learning. And he just said to me, I've got to learn that. He saw me juggling and said, I've got to do that. And within about three days, <laughs> was 10 times, 10 times the juggler I ever was. So uh, it was a brilliant thing to do. Yeah. And I, I taught myself to do it. And I had a couple of street performer friends I know who showed me how to do it. The best tip I got was to do it over a bed. Practice over a bed because you're going to drop the balls so many times it stops you from bending down too many times. And that was a brilliant tip. And it also stops what's called the juggler's run or the juggler's walk, mm -hmm. which is you tend to walk towards the balls as you start juggling them. So there you go. Two, there are two priceless tips for you. Thank you. And it, to be fair, the show did inspire me to want to learn juggling. And But it wasn't until about the age of 16 that I actually managed to learn to do it. And uh, well, you I, did it. Yeah. And... 
my mom, I think, wishes that I hadn't picked it up because I am. Because <laughs> you say about dropping the balls, well, yeah, and I've got quite. I've got the professional acrylic ones, which are a lot harder, so they make a racket yes. when they're dropped boom, on the floor. Boom, boom. Yeah. <laughs> so she's like, "Well, you stop doing that." Didn't have to fall off the ceiling with sellotape on your boot. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't put sellotape on the board. No, no, cheating. No, no but it was a brilliant skill to have, and actually, I've used it since on a couple of things. But Mike Benz was, oh, he could smoke me with the three ball cascade and the shower and the reverse <laughs> shower. And the did you manage to get up to five? No, I can only do three, but I can do the reverse uh, cascade and a few other bits just about. That's a nice throw, yeah. And, well, Mike, Mike um, could do. I think Mike got up to four balls, but he was he was really good at it, yeah, and it was great. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. it, it was it was featured in the opening titles as well. And I remember there was uh, this is going to sound really anarchy, but I remember there was one series of Mike and Angelo where. In the title sequence or in the credits, you, you're kind of running up and down a set of stairs while juggling, I seem to remember. Gosh, and yeah. you're wearing like sparkly jackets. I think it was a scene from an episode. And again, young me trying to replicate that. I think I ended up, <laughs> I think I ended up falling down the stairs attempting it as, oh God, the amount of things I copied off Mike and Angela and various other CITV shows uh, drove my mother really? mad. Oh, God. No, I, I, uh. Again, I apologise firmly and I. <laughs> I, I, I reinstate that I had nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tell me what. Tell me what to do. I'll turn up and do it. But yeah, no, that's lovely. Um, and with Mike and Angelo, um, it ran for a long time, and for a show that ran for a long time and was very successful, it, it had a lot of cast changes. There was a completely different cast at yes, the end yes. by the time it started. I mean, I'll go through it in sequence for those who don't know. So when it first started, there was Rita and there was the original Mike. And yes. Tyler Butterworth. Then you yes. came in. Then the original yes. Mike left, and there was a series without a Mike, and there was Ellie. I've found out. I didn't know that one, but so there was there was an, there was an Ellie. It was next door. That's remember. right. Yes, it's all coming back. To and me now. then there was the blonde Mike, Mike Benz. And yeah. then Rita left and Katie came in, the housekeeper. Uh, yeah. And Oh, the blonde Mike was the nephew of Rita and the first one was the son. So there's that okay, thing my about... my brain's gone now. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it's there's the that many Mikes. The and then... Um... And then some years later, Mike Benz left, and then there was Mickey, Michaelo's, right. uh, was next yeah. door neighbour's uh, niece. And then there was the final series with, with another Mike, um, who was the nephew of Katie. So that's, uh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. So there you go. You thought politics was complicated. <laughs> but so, yeah, yeah it, was, it was a, I, I think also there was, it's a, it's a period where people had work and they were going to other jobs. And um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the actors were moving on to other things. And then, Fair play to the writers, to Grant Cathro and Lee Pressman and Alex Bartlett, who came in later, because that tension and that constant morphing was kind of been easy. And I know as a writer that that's some of the plots were very complex and they look really easy. But something like the episode where, oh gosh, I think it's called, um, it's the one where Angelo plays, um, oh, she's got a wonderful name in it tim brain brain old brain no she's called she's got brilliant tiara thickerton plank played by the brilliant pippa hayward and uh, angelo plays her rather philandering um fiance a terry thomas alike i think the episode is called come on tim you can do it come on uh oh gosh well, it'll come back to me in the end but anyway that was so complex because you angelo taking the plunge that's what it's called mm -hmm. Um, and of course, poor Tiara's fiance is Angelo's double. So imagine that, <laughs> and where that can lead to. Yes. So yeah. it was very, um, yeah, it was very heightened and very. Um, some of the plots were actually very, very complex, but brilliantly executed. So that you know, when you had new people coming into it, they entered this kind of world where. You were expected to go, okay, that's me. So I go there, that's it, that's fine. I'm that person and that, but this happens. Oh, and by the way, then you'll be coming through the cupboard at warp speed nine and you'll have to interview a librarian from Planet Sarg. <laughs> um, so that everyone seemed to fit into it really beautifully. Um, and everyone really, every, uh, do you know what? Every actor says this, but it was that kind of company where, you know, we were very close. And if we ever saw each other now, it would probably seem like 10 minutes ago that we actually did see each other. So it was a, a very happy experience, and I don't think there were any sort of speed bumps in terms of the, those recasting 
possible recasting problems or anything like that. Everyone was just great. And they brought their own thing to it as well. Um, yeah. So the mics were very different. The Mickeys were very different. And and the storylines accordingly. Yeah, it's it's cool that the show managed to carry on with the, the cast changes. And also, like I said, there were some series yeah. without a mic. There was uh, yeah, there was a couple of series without a mic in it at all, but it was still called Mike and Angelo. So they, they still made yeah. it work. <laughs> yes, there you go. Well... I think necessity is the mother of invention, and of course, Angelo is the king of invention. So they, <laughs> yes. oh, that was a link. Yes, oh. there were some uh, wonderful inventions on that show. The pat, the patent pending, this, yeah. that, and the other. The uh, I'm trying to think. There was always time machines that brought back historical figures. Um, yeah, again, Alex just designed them so beautifully, and they they did look like they could work, and they certainly felt like they could work. And you know, if it was a question of bringing back William Shakespeare to hmm. to help Angelo write a sitcom, which I remember. And brilliant actor Jasper Britton uh, playing Shakespeare. It was just a joy working with him. And and again, you know, you know, he's he's such a fine actor. And having to do those crazed heightened trade-offs with him was was a real pleasure. But again, they they, they were brilliant. I do I do remember one episode where he had to Angelo had to play judge and jury in a court case. And of course, that means there's loads of you. So again, I was learning how to work with eye lines, tape marks on the floor and the the thrill of the show. And it was another thrill of the show that, that endured actually, seriously Jack, was seeing it all edited together because of course it was done in such um a, a technical way that you never really got to see it in its in its whole until you watched it go out. And you never got preview copies. You didn't sit in the theatre and watch a, a you know a preview or a viewing of it. And it, some of it was just breathtaking and some of the directors we had like Neville Green, it was just incredible that he would storyboard um, the, 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 each show. I used to love looking at Neville's stories, storyboards because they were done like cartoon strips. And I think I'm right that he was an art student. Um, uh, and I think he was a, a contemporary of David Hockney and David Oxtoby at Bradford. And he would, you could see that in his work. It was so well prepared and how he envisaged everything eventually gluing together and being edited was was breathtaking. So you'd see the inventions was would how they'd work and how suddenly um you know William Shakespeare would walk through the door and it would it was just lovely. Yeah. It was it would get again it was a real pleasure. Good stuff, Treat, good stuff. Really. And uh, so are you in touch with any of the cast still that was was on the show like regularly, still friends? Well I am because <laughs> I ended up um, dating and being with Katie Murphy's sister, who has been the love of my life for twenty-two years. I did and, wonder uh, with the surname actually, <laughs> and she and when when I when I asked uh, to interview, she said, "Ask Tim how we met," and it just come back to me now. <laughs> Jack, she's very keen to get to get top billing, um, <laughs> so I get to see Katie pretty much all the time. Oh, fantastic! Uh, Mike, I do see, and we bump into each other. I do owe him, or he owes me a beer, according to the emails. I'm not sure which way round it is now, but it was a total thrill to see him in Joker last year. I didn't year. know till afterwards. I didn't Brilliant. not spot. I, I didn't like seeing him getting, getting murdered, but I, mm. I was so thrilled to see him. And I do know his career has been great. And he has, I think after Michelangelo, and of course he played Lord Fauntleroy in the brilliant BBC Sunday evening drama version. Um, he went back to RADA and he, he learned the craft and he has done brilliantly. And then he joined the RSC. And uh, one occasion, which was beautiful, I was in Liverpool working at the Royal Court Theatre back in, gosh, 2008. And it was a really rainy night. And uh, we'd all gone for a drink after the show. And there was Mike. He was, at, <laughs> he was doing an RSC tour. So we ended up having a fabulous evening. <laughs> together and a tour of various bars that I was able to help him with historically of course landmarks um and we caught up that so yes I do occasionally bump into him and see him and hear what he's up to and I know he's gone from strength to strength I know he did a play on Broadway uh, last year I think it was possibly the year before with Cynthia Nixon uh and he also was in the West End version of um with David Suchet the importance of being earnest so, uh, yeah, it's great. He's done really well. Fantastic stuff. Oh, that's really great to hear. I, I, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. And, of course, I see a lot of the uh, the character actors that are in it. And, uh, uh, yeah, I bump into them on my travels. So, yeah, we do. We sort of, 
yes, so so I can't get away from Katie Murphy. There you go. <laughs> and I was a huge fan of Katie Murphy's before Mike and Angelo, and I had to pinch myself because I was such a fan of Tutti Frutti, the show that she was in with Richard Wilson. It was brilliant. <laughs> and uh, so when she walked into the rehearsal room on, as you say, one of the big cast changes, I was well chuffed. But if you'd have said to me I'd have ended up with a sister, I wouldn't have believed it. <laughs> there you go, Anna. I've mentioned now. There you go. <laughs> great stuff, great stuff. And I, I think the the ear of the show with Katie and, and Mike Benz was, was the, the best ear. I think that was the uh, yeah, one Oh, show. that's lovely. Yeah, good. Oh, thank you. All good. of it was good, but I that was too, my favourite favorite era yeah. of it, I think, yeah. <laughs> I think when I was saying earlier that, that we or I had to find my groove, I think with that cast and that team that, that I did. And it was the sort, yeah, for me, I agree with you, actually, Jack, from a personal point of view. It was when the show was really, really singing and firing on, on all cylinders. And again, you learn a lot from a comic actress like Katie, and it, it was great. And I know Mike and I really loved working together, and the three of us did. So I agree with you. Yeah, thank you. No problem. And... Uh... He also got a lot wackier as well by that point. It, was just, it started off as kind of like a drama with comedy in it, and then it just yeah, became a full-on yeah. full yeah, wacky comedy. Yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, a lot of people don't know or forget that Elizabeth Estenson, who's still in Emmerdale after so many years as Diane Sugden, yes. played the next-door neighbour, Daphne Forks Bentley, which I remember Angela always used to get wrong. Uh, yes. Daphne Fork Bender and stuff like that, and Daphne Falstenger. Hello, Falsten. Fork Bender. Hello, Fork Bender. I, yes, and I love working with Liz. Cause yeah. She's great. And also, again, that thing of true comic timing and working with someone like that who, who can do something with a withering glance that most people couldn't do with, you know, a full soliloquy. She was just so brilliant at that. And again, a joust between the characters. Uh, and yeah, and, and I remember her being on the Live of Birds, of course. And so, yeah, it was a real a real thrill to work with, with Liz, yeah. It's great, marvelous, and uh, we was on as well earlier about um, like all the all the different actors that had you know the the occasional appearances in. I mean, like you said, Ron Moody, um, yeah, and right. also the likes of Biggins and John Savident as well. All all appeared in it. Oh, I loved working with John. He was fantastic, and again, the comic timing was brilliant. And you know, you'd you'd be watching him doing his thing, and he he was wonderful and. and he was such a great guy, larger than life. Probably one of the best dressed men I've ever met. He was so, so eloquent and dapper and beautiful. And he was. Uh, and then you'd put put on Turner Classic movies, and there he would be with Laurence Olivier in the Battle of Britain. So you'd think, come on, Whitnell, raise your game. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was brilliant, and of course he was wonderful in Coronation Street. And yeah. Yeah, 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 and um, actually mentioning Christopher Biggins, that's one of the going back to favourite episodes. I think the one there was two episodes where you played a character called Hank Sinatra, a singing <laughs> cowboy. I that was fantastic. I'd forgotten that. God, you're good, blimey. Well, that was one of the episodes I had on a tape for years. It was. It wasn't the one with Christopher Biggins. I, I didn't see that one until it came on YouTube a little while back. But yeah. I, ha I had the one that was a bit a few series later where he um, does a nice scream laugh. advert as oh, Hank Sinatra and he loses his voice. But right, the, uh, I think I had to write a little song for that. A little yeah, which is very good. I think I still remember the words to it, actually. <laughs> but the. Um, the first one, it's like a, 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 a kind of a rip-off of Stars in Their Eyes, isn't it? And uh, you go on That's, and do yeah. go and do that. Oh, well, well Lee, <laughs> Lee Bresman, bless him. As I said earlier, we, we both love music. And he, he'd, he'd come up with these mad ideas and say, there's the lyrics, go and put a tune to it. So I had this little home studio and the, the composers actually were graceful enough to let me, or gracious enough to let me actually have a go at writing a few songs. So I, I think I wrote one which was something about Cricklewood, which was a sort of... Anchors Away type song and I remember Lee gave me the lyric which was brilliant which was uh, see our ickle stick of wood on the end so it was all, it was all kind of very um, uh, yeah, yeah. And then, but the, the ice cream one was great it was sort of a Buddy Holly yeah. type tune I remember recording it upstairs in my old home studio yes and uh, uh, but Hank Sinatra of oh, no. course I'd forgotten <laughs> that I think my favourite ever character name because they came up with brilliant ones was it was a, was a he was a character played by John Barden in one of the earlier episodes called Aubrey Hepburn. <laughs> That's great. So, oh, that is brilliant. 
And as I say, Tiara Thicket and Plank, I just I love <laughs> yes. her. She's brilliant. But they did come up with some wonderful titles and wonderful names. But Hank Sinatra. Oh, no. I know. I've got a feeling that might have been our last. I think it was the last one because um, I, yeah. I the one with the because like I said the first one was with Biggins and it was the stars in their eyes and then That's there was the right, one where yeah. he brought him back to do an ice cream advert and I believe it was the last one and that episode always used to get me in fits of giggles and I used to if I ever had like friends around or sometimes when I used to go to school I used to bring videos for people to watch and I put that on and the bit where he loses his voice. And they put right. a ta- the ice cream, or is yeah. allergic to ice cream? Or? And they put a tape yeah. on for him to mime to, but they play at the wrong speed. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that used yes. to crack me up every day. Oh, In fact, it still does. And, you know, it's great because it's brilliant talking to you, Jack. Because it sounds really disingenuous, but when you've done a hundred shows, it's lovely little things like this that prod the memory, and it brings it back to you. And you think, God, did I do that? That's amazing. It's yes. brilliant. <laughs> and I do remember the, the actor, I think it's Peter Banks on that, who played the, the ice cream baron. Mr. Huckleberry. And he fantastic. <laughs> and he was brilliant. He was, yeah, he was absolutely wonderful. But it was great, that episode. And, yeah, so that was literally, that song was the swan song. Yeah. Uh, but there you go, yeah. There was some good music on the show. In fact, the theme tune, I think, was fantastic. The the the, yeah, the, the twangy banjoy one you know what i'm yeah, about yeah banjoy one yeah, yeah. <laughs> i thought that was good yeah I like and i still see the composers of that in their studio in london so oh. there's a connection there yeah very yeah. nice did you know that the theme tune to michelangelo has been involved in a viral youtube video in the last couple of years <laughs> the, the short answer to that jack is no i didn't okay know um i tell me more dear i tell me know more. nothing about football my knowledge of football is zilch so you might know more and understand the gag than i do but there was there's a video that came online about eight years ago called roy hodgson's musical walkabout <laughs> right and it's a, it's a, i'm going to be writing this down it's it. a, an animation of roy hodgson walking on a, a series of increasingly bizarre backgrounds it starts off with like liverpool i know he was manager for liverpool at some point i know that yeah. and then it kind of he's doing walking really well he's doing in really well he's walking in space across a <laughs> desert and this 90 second video the music is a looped version of the michelangelo theme and there's lots Good of comments grief. Of people going, I know where this is from, but I can't put my finger on it. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Well, I, no, I didn't know that at all. And one, it begs the question: Why did they actually go with that? So... I've no idea, but it, it, I think it's got something <laughs> like over a hundred thousand hits so far. So yeah, I, I don't know. But well, um... I, you're, you are I, you are a mine of information. I know more about it than I do. Well, so there's. There was also a great video about two years back. There's a, there's a guy on YouTube who does covers of TV themes on the piano. And in the one where he does Michelangelo, he does like a split screen effect so he can appear in the video twice. So while he's playing the theme on the piano, he's got, like his other self, on upside down, juggling behind him <laughs> as like a tribute. <laughs> Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, well, rock and roll to him. <laughs> I think brilliant. it's called um, <laughs> Piano Bash or something like that. It is good. It is good. <laughs> you know, it's funny. When I, when I did the show, I've often told people this, and they just don't get it at all. But when I was involved in the show, which would have been from, I think it was 89, 1990 to 2000, I remember that, um, I very, very rarely, if, if at all, got recognised by the audience, by children, mm. um, or by their parents. But it was only really comparatively recently that I would be stopped in a bank or a shop or and somebody I guess your age would 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 say are you that mad guy from that show? <laughs> <laughs> you know they, they, they didn't know my name or they didn't know but they'd recognize or associate me with it and the only thing I can think of was that it was such a, a heightened show and it was so out there and that children genuinely believed there was a an alien called Angelo somewhere so I just yeah, it's a funny old thing. It's not. It's not something that I guess you'd really understand unless you'd lived through it. And it really was. I would be in the supermarket, and someone would say, "You're mad. You are. I've seen you on that show." And it was yeah, a long, long time after the fact. So I guess that probably explains why someone would articulate Roy Hodgson. 
I have no idea. <laughs> the music from their generation, I, I guess. I don't know. I've no well, idea, but it is out story. there. Thank you, Jack. It's great. <laughs> yeah. So the show ran for so many years, and how did I mean? I know it ran for a very long time, and you had a good time doing the show. How did you feel when the show finished and when it ended? And did you know when you were doing the last one that it was going to be the last one? Well, that's a really good question because I think, given that the show was a true survivor, it survived. I was talking earlier about the demise of Thames Television, and then it jumped to an independent production company who called Tetra Films who got it, and we moved from various um, studios and various production houses. So we filmed at London Weekend, their studios. We filmed at, at Fountain Studios in Wembley. So it, it did feel slightly like um, a provincial tour almost, that we were hoping for the next venue, hoping for the next commission, and to be fair, when I first started it, um, it was really something that I thought I might have done for a series. I'd have been jolly lucky to have got two series from it. And of course I did. Uh, the idea of it with myself having run 10, 10 series and the series overall having run 12 would have just seemed like it seemed so kind of out there at the time. And it did. The show kept coming back and back when we thought that would be the last one anyway because there were all sorts of mitigating factors and external influences that spelt the end of the show. Uh, it was unlikely that it would come back because there was a personnel change or a regime change at the broadcaster. It survived all kinds of things. So when it kept coming back and back and back each winter, um, it was a real joy. And I combined it with my theatre work and my other work and my writing work and my voice work. So it was something that I always felt really lucky that it, that it came back at all. Uh, and we were told once or twice this will be the last series and then blow me down, it came back again. So <laughs> never say never, I suppose, was, it, was, was the attitude. But I do know that when we did the last one to answer your question, that we were told that was it and that was it. And it had been a great run. And, you know, I was free now to get my head shaved for the first time ever, which was liberating at the rap party, I can tell you. And the dear makeup staff who put me in the chair said, come on, Witters, it's coming off. And gave me a zero cut to, tend, to attend the party. And I went to the party in a lovely brand new blue petrol suit and a buzz cut. Nobody said a thing. <laughs> so I felt incredibly liberated. And it stayed the same since. Um, but yeah, so, so we, were, we were aware that that would be the last of it. And I think, I think we were a little bit sort of sad to see it go. And it... And it's chats like this that make me realise how blooming lucky I was. And I, re I really mean that. I really do. Um, and I was saying to you earlier that I have been told since that, you know, I went through what's known as a golden age of children's television. And I certainly think that I was at, at the tail end of that, looking back now, that it was really lucky to be part of a, a really active, vibrant, successful commissioning period where great TV dramas were made for children great comedy was made for children, imaginative Saturday morning TV was made for kids. But nobody ever said, you know, these are children's programmes. We watch them as families. Adults love watching them. Students would, would watch them. You know, people, it was, it was very democratic and it was also ecumenical. It went right across the age span. I remember loving Saturday morning kids TV into my 30s, you know. And it's true, I've got a brilliant book um, I don't know if you've seen it, it's got a guy called Richard Lewis, and it's called The Encyclopedia of Cult Children's TV. Um, and it's funny because Mike and Angela isn't in it. <laughs> but I loved I got this out because I knew I was speaking to you, and I thought I'd read you the last thing because it sort of sums up the innocence and the honesty of and the imagination that went into kids' telly. And it says, The Encyclopedia of Cult Children's Television will take you back to a better age. It will take you on a journey back to Chigley, to Moomin Valley, to Toy Town, high above the streets and houses, where it was all so honest and simple, where it was perfectly ordinary for a camp man in dungarees, a big woolly bear, a fey pink hippo and a bitchy zipped-up gimp to get into bed with each other and sing a song. <laughs> I just love that. I, it's so true, though. I, it's I so true. That, that, that beautiful, self-effacing honesty and innocence i think the end of that just just to answer your question i think the end of that period if, I, if i'm not not too melodramatic about it that i was feeling it really i was feeling that it was coming to the mm. end 
uh, of that. And of course, now it's a very different um, world in which children can curate what they want to watch and they can choose what they want to watch and build their own menus and, and move away from TV and, and go into online online programming or their games. And, that, and that's something that I, I did feel in at the end of Michelangelo, that it was sort of moving away from terrestrial entertainment and into something very, very different. Certainly, definitely. I do feel like I was the last generation to watch that terrestrial era yeah. before it... I mean, digital channels were about at the time, but just not as prominent as they are now. As I said earlier, you know, you're talking about a rating that most TV mm. shows would die for now. Um, and I remember when I was a guest on Blue Peter, which I guested on a couple of times to promote some musical theatre that I was involved in. Uh, the very first time I, I did Blue Peter as a guest, I came off and Biddy Baxter, the legendary producer, told me that 11 million people had just watched wow. it. And I think it was a time when when children's television certainly was was really enjoyed by the whole family. And you'd go from something like Blue Peter and then the goodies would be on and it would ease into adult programming into the evening. And so by the end of it, and I think the last show was in 2000, I might be wrong, but I think it was. I believe it was uh, as well, yeah. Yeah, I think it had come, it had reached the, the natural end of its life, but it's something that I'll always be really proud of and, and really happy to have been involved in. Fabulous. And uh, we were talking about it just before we recorded it, um, but you shared some lovely memories, actually. Um, the very last series had a different mic in it, um, yeah. played by Stephen Geller, and who unfortunately oh, yeah. a couple of years ago, uh, I found out, passed away. But you said that um, he was, you were talking about how he was wonderful work with, and you still own um, a present that he gave oh, to you. Oh, dear Stephen. Yeah, I think his father was a, was a dealer in, in bespoke high-end hi-fi units. So, um, dear Stephen, very kindly did Katie Murphy and I a deal <laughs> where we got these state-of-the-art sound systems. And I still Aww. have mine, and I don't, I'd never play it without thinking of Stephen. And uh, he was an absolute dream, and he was a lovely guy to work with. And again, the children we had on it were, were brilliant because they were all really professional and, and really loved doing the show. And we had some great laughs as well. And it was fun actually, because I think it had to be fun. It was hard work as well, but it had to be fun in order to honour the spirit of the show. And, of course, Angelo really, realistically, as a character, is a perpetual child. He's learning, he's wide-eyed, everything needing to be learnt. He's an alien. He's from another planet where on Earth things are, you know, very different from how they are where he comes from, where some will, will chase him through time and space to remind him he owes um, some time on a library book that's overdue. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, I've seen that episode. That's a good one, that. I love that. <laughs> so, and again, an actor like Gareth Marks in it, I just, he was so brilliant in it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so I think there is an element of that, that innocence and that wide-eyed mm -hmm. thing that I really wanted to keep to preserve in the show. Um, and I got on really well, well with all the kids that we had on it. And yeah, dear Stephen, I'm really sorry to hear the sad news about Stephen. And I only found out comparatively recently, so, um, yeah, mm. devastating, awful. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, but one thing you mentioned just, and I've got to ask now, you said about the buzz cut. So did you hate having that hairstyle? <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, I've inherited male pattern baldness from my mother's side of the family, mm. so there wasn't very much I could do about it. But, uh, no, every year when it was dyed red and pulled through a... A, a comb for Angelo. It, it was a yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a challenge. Um, but yeah, it was uh, yeah. I see. It's funny, really. I just had to put up with it. And then I promise you, this is true. On the very last show, wonderful, the makeup artists on it, um, Sally Hennon and Viv Gunsey said, "Right, you'll get you. We're going to shave that." <laughs> it was brilliant. And they checked. They were very professional. They checked with the producer. Have you finished with Tim? Yes. That's it. That's it. In fact, I still remember someone saying, that's it, for good. And they marched me into the makeup room and, and gave me a buzz cut. So there you go. That's, <laughs> that's a great that's story. It. Yeah. And, I've, got a, uh, I've got a permanent haircut courtesy of my command. <laughs> <laughs> And um, another thing you were saying to me just before we recorded this is we were on about CITV, like when it was in Birmingham, and you said that you appeared yeah. on it a few times to be interviewed, and I that did, was good fun. yes. I did. It was amazing. I got the train up to... Uh, to New Street, yeah, and um, yeah, I, I remember it being really uh, nerve-wracking because it was absolutely live, and it had to be live. 
So I would sit there with Stephen and Daniela and, um, yeah, and and they'd be chatting about what I was up to and who I knew and we'd we'd be swapping notes and then uh, <laughs> suddenly the red light would go on and we'd be live to the nation. So you had to be on, on your metal, really. But I was amazed at how professional it was and how it was a kind of cross between being really relaxed and being really sort of acutely aware that you were you were going live to the nation so yeah it was great and of course that's gone i think hasn't it now i think there's a citv yeah. presence digitally i haven't checked it out but i think there is a there is a, um yeah. and they they actually did um about it was in 2013 for their 30th anniversary they did a weekend of classic shows and oh. the very first show that they shown guess which one it was <laughs> it was no. <laughs> Mike and Angela. Yeah, they shown two episodes, one with Tyler and one with yourself, uh, back in 2013. And I was up first thing in the morning to watch both of them. I was really oh, excited. Well, thank you very much. That's really lovely, actually. And, yeah, it was great because you'd be sitting there. And then, you obviously, they had lots and lots of different guests going up and you'd be sitting there and then cue your own program, which was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And then you'd come out of it and they'd say, and here he is, and here they are. And I do remember going up to do shows with Mike Benz in, I think we did What's Up Doc and we did the Disney Club and we certainly did um, Take Two with Philip Schofield just to promote the show and, you know, to, to publicise the show. So you got to meet some amazing people and work with some amazing people. Um, and And... You know, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it, I, I'm not just saying this, it was a really exciting time as well, because you felt part of, of a very um, busy, productive and creative industry. And there was lots of, all the channels had kids programming and, and quite right too. And, uh, you know, as, as I say, it's not something I'm involved with anymore, uh, but I'm really pleased. I, I, I just experience that sort of that the tail end of the golden age as it were absolutely so the final michelangelo question do you think it should be released on dvd i absolutely do and i know people will think oh because he wants the money but that's not the case i tell you why i'd love it to be released because i really it's a body of work that i believe in that i'm proud of and i'd love to have a really nice high definition copy of it because my acting career exists and, and it took place at a time when actually all you were, you know, you really got was a, was a, a dodgy old VHS copy or a, or a very snowy um, Sony or, or Betamax copy of my original work. So when I do see things online, I'm amazed that people have, have archived them or collect them or curated them. But it would be lovely to have some, yeah. some And as you say, things like, if, if there was a documentary crew present, which there was, and if there were little extras like the CITV links or our appearances on various CITV shows, I would love that. I would love to see see that. And apart from anything else, I think it would just be great fun to go go through them and think, wow, what was I doing there? Well, gosh, wow, wow. And, and to remember things that I've completely forgotten, really. It would be great to see them. So, yes, come on, network. <laughs> Stick it out. Um, but I have heard sort of periodically over the years that, that it had been considered and they were looking at things. And when you see what is being released on DVD, one can live in hope, I guess, because there are things that even I loved from my childhood. And there's a show called a brilliant children's drama called The Intruder with Milton Johns. It's an absolutely brilliant um, thriller. thriller. I think it was on on Sunday evenings. Um, an ITV show, and uh, it was scheduled for a DVD within, I think, gosh, 29 or something, and it still hasn't come out, and I, oh. I, I keep looking all the time <laughs> thinking, oh, please, 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 sir, circumvent all, all um, copyright issues, and I want it very much, and there's one episode, I think, on YouTube, so, uh, yes, so hopefully, if, there, if enough people write these, uh, or write, you know, petition online or, or tweets, we might get to see it. I'd love, yeah, I'd love that. That'd be great. Definitely. I mean, there was an event at the BFI last summer about 90s kids TV, and one of the yeah. one of the shows that they put on the big screen for a few seconds was Mike and Angela, which was incredible no. to see on a on a big cinema screen for a, for oh, everyone to see. BFI member, I didn't know about that. What? Oh, oh last oh. last July, I think it was. Yeah, last July. 
you know, I didn't know that. I'd, I'd, I'd love to. I have. Yeah, that that's brilliant. That's oh. well. Maybe, as I say, maybe as in, as as people seem to be remembering the show um, fondly, they they might do something. Someone might do something Fingers about crossed. it. Hopefully. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so to kind of wrap things up, since Mike and Angelo, I know that you've done a lot of voice work in a lot of kids' TV. Uh, a lot yeah. of people don't know that you were the narrator of the Teletubbies as well. I was. That, yes. I was the original narrator of the mm-hmm. Teletubbies. I could calm my sister's children who were growing up at the time by looking at them and saying, one day in Teletubby land, something appeared from far away. And they'd look at me with a cocked head and they're, what the hell? What? <laughs> so <laughs> it was uh, again. That was another job. I thought, God, gosh, I'll never get this. There were about fifty other actors in the queue behind me. I think, and uh, yeah, it was an amazing thing to 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 uh, be involved in. And I think that's really what I'm trying to say. That that because to be a part of a success, anything like that, any anything that is successful, on whatever level you know, and, and of its own merits and anything else, it's a treat and it's a privilege. And I remember that show just, people have forgotten now, but it created a furore back in 1997 when it first came out. And there were accusations that it was dumbing children down and subverting language and all these kind of crazy things. And guess what? It's still being made. So It certainly is. It was an amazing thing to be part of the first wave of that. And I got, actually, this is true, Four of the very, very first cuddly soft toys that came off the production line that Christmas because they were rarer than hen's teeth and they created sort of, you know, um, chaos at the supermarket tills. But I was very lucky. I I got given a set and I gave them to uh, a hospice in Bury St Edmunds where my parents lived. And uh, they raffled them for their Christmas raffle that that Christmas. But, yeah, that was an amazing time. It 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 was really exciting to see that show being it was the same i remember that uh, david dimbleby did these wrap-ups of the year and he they, they <laughs> came live from teletubby land that year i remember that <laughs> so uh, you'll probably be able to see that on youtube david david dimbleby talking about the spice girls and the teletubbies from tubby land <laughs> great yeah. stuff and like i say you've done voices on a lot of kids shows in recent years haven't yes you? i have yes it's been interesting work and i've done shows like thomas and friends um, a show called Underground Ernie, lovely little show called Tom and Vicky that I did with I Richard, Richard Attenborough. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Men's Show, which I loved doing. Um, Roy the Racing Car with Peter Kay, which was fantastic fun. Um, so that's kept me busy, and yes, that's that's good work. Um, and of course, I've I've shifted really from my performing work into writing work, and that's what I really wanted to do all along really and I was very lucky to be able to do it in the end so when I realised I could subsist and and survive as a writer I eased back on my performing work and uh, I could feel a collective sigh of relief (laughs) throughout the industry no no I just I decided to to really concentrate on that and I had to really Um, and I've been very lucky in that as well so I can't complain Yes, and your uh, production company is called Feather Productions, isn't it? Feather Productions Limited, yes. And I co-run that with Anna Murphy, Katie Murphy's sister. And we have had quite a few things that have gone very well for us. And um, we like to start small. So we we tend to produce uh, small-scale theatre productions if they work and if they're kind to people, then we can, you know, enlarge them and get them on a broader stage and a bigger stage. Um, we've done some great work at the Edinburgh Festival over the last few years. And we're hopefully, after this terrible time, um, looking at a new feature film, which would be really good. So it's all systems go, but obviously waiting for a time when we can encourage people to feel confident and comfortable enough to come back to theatres. And, um, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, I don't know how we're going to do that. And I know there are lots of people who are trying to consider and work out how to do that. So that has affected our work profoundly, but we'll keep going because we want to see the other side and, you know, be on the other side with everybody. Certainly, and all the best with that. And uh, Thank you very very much, Jack, yeah. No problem. And uh, I know that you also wrote the, that Kenny Everett biography uh, that was on uh, a few oh, years I back, did. and I love that. I thought that was great. Oh, you're I did really see good, you are. Blimey. <laughs> <laughs> 
oh, you've done your homework. Roy Hodgson? <laughs> Kenny Everett? Yes, thank you. No, that was... Uh, it's funny, I mentioned Kenny earlier because I used to see him on my travels around, oh gosh, everywhere really, where where I went, whether it was in theatres or TV studios and certainly at Thames TV. And I just always wanted to... to I thought he was such a bewitching broadcaster, particularly on radio. I loved his radio shows. And the way he would record jingles and himself and sing them and multi-track them and come up with amazing characters, quite similar to Mike and Angelo characters, really, with things like Captain Kremen, his space series, which is just fantastic. Um, I think you can listen to them all on one recording, actually, but it's brilliantly done. And again, if I go back to your question about comic idols, Kenny was certainly one of them. Um, And he was a true comedy hero of mine. Uh, mainly because of his radio work. Uh, he was a voice that spoke to me. And I thought, well, you know, I, the more I, I researched his character and, and discovered this incredibly colourful, complex private life, it just seemed the heartland of a great drama. So, yeah, I I went set about it and I pitched it to a few broadcasters and I got it made in 2012, 2013, I think. And, yeah, it did very well for me. I'm very proud of it. So... Wonderful stuff. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ev, as they would say. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Yeah. And uh, if people want to follow you online and see what you're up to, I believe you're on Twitter, aren't you? I am on Twitter, but I'm useless at it. Talking <laughs> of Kenny Everett and his technological prowess, I'm absolutely hopeless at it. I seem to curse <laughs> anything <laughs> with a switch or a or an LCD screen. I <laughs> go horribly wrong, and I end up. I probably say something that would offend most of Oxford or something <laughs> strange would happen. Um, so I, t- I tend to, I'm quite allergic to it really, but if Anna and I, or if I'm doing something that requires a little bit of publicity, then I'll, or marketing, then it's a good, it's a good way of letting people know what I do. Yeah. Um, and we also have our website, featherproductions.com, which is uh, up and running. So you can see what we're doing on that. But uh, yeah, I'm still here. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Uh, my hair isn't, but I <laughs> Lovely stuff. Well, Tim, it's been an absolute joy to chat with you over this oh, uh, last hour or I so like and reminisce. Thank you, Jack. Brilliant. I hope I've waffled on. Not at all. Have, but there you go. Not at all. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Good. Thank you, Jack. Yeah, all the best. And you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening, and a big thanks to both Tim and Anna for their support. Do check out their future work with Feather Productions. I'll be back in the new year with a new podcast, and don't forget there's plenty of previous editions available to listen to as well. Until next time, I'll see you soon.